Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper today. We begin with our health lead. States facing surges should seriously look at shutting down again or at least pause reopening. That is the message from Dr. Anthony Fauci. States across the South and the West continue to break records. California and Florida today reporting a record number of coronavirus deaths. Florida seeing a huge spike in the number of people testing positive for coronavirus there. The positivity rate now more than 18 percent. So to put that into context for you, the CDC initially recommended that states with more than 20 percent positivity rates stay shut down. At least a dozen states are seeing hospitalized, most hospitalized coronavirus patients since the pandemic began. And as intensive care units fill up and PPE shortages are reported yet again, an ER doctor tells CNN the scary part is that it's only going to get worse. As CNN's Erica Hill reports, more than 10% of the new infections have come just in the last 10 days. Florida continuing to break records. For the people who expected to see a sharp decline in the number of cases as the weather became warm and moist, uh, I think we're seeing that that's absolutely not the case. Exhibit A, the Sunshine State, which just recorded nearly 9,000 new cases at 120 COVID-19 related deaths, a single day high. We all hoped for a flattening and a stabilization. We haven't seen it yet. Arizona, one of nearly a dozen states seeing an uptick in hospitalizations. Any state that is having a serious problem, that state should seriously look at shutting down. In Kentucky, new cases jumped 40% in the last week. In Oklahoma, they're up 45%. Across the country, 33 states moving in the wrong direction. There's no immediate fix to this. We're going to have to really put in the work to get ahead of this epidemic. The New York Times reporting PPE could soon become a concern again, noting doctors in Houston have been told to reuse N95 masks, echoing the vice president's request on Wednesday. We're encouraging uh, healthcare workers to begin now to use some of the best practices that we learned in other parts of the country to uh, uh, to preserve and to reuse uh, the PPE supplies. Even in states holding steady, like Maryland, officials remain cautious. Look, we're very concerned about what's happening around the country, and I don't want to take any kind of a victory lap. The state seeing a spike in cases among those under 35. Michigan reporting one in five COVID patients is between 25 and 34 years old. Meantime, in New York State, the early epicenter, less than 1% of tests are now positive for the virus. A sliver of hope amid grim numbers in the new hotspots. Positivity rates skyrocketing in Arizona, Texas, and Florida. This is an outbreak uh, that's uncontained in pre-fall. 
And just want to update you on some numbers, Pamela, that we're just getting in from the state of California. California reporting its highest single-day death toll, 149 COVID-related deaths. And Governor Newsom saying, quote, the mortality rates are still front and center and should be in your consciousness. We've been hearing from a number of officials, of course. We know that the death toll does lag behind cases mm-hmm. and hospitalizations, and there is concern that we'll continue to see an uptick. We'll be keeping an eye on those numbers. Thank you so much, Erica Hill. And joining me now is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Good to see you, Dr. Gupta. There's so much to discuss here. You know, you heard Dr. Fauci say today that any state that is having a serious problem should look at shutting down, but then he Mm -hmm. cautioned he hopes that it's not necessary and that pausing reopening should be the way to go. What do you think? Is that sufficient? What was your takeaway? Well, I mean, Pamela, the the takeaway is that the status quo is obviously not working, Mm -hmm. right? So pausing reopening alone Uh, is the status quo. I mean, because they're not reopening, so you just put a halt on those plans. That's not going to work in some of these states. I mean, clearly the numbers are growing significantly as Erica was just, Erica Hill was just talking about. So if it is pausing reopening with real diligence about these measures in, in the public, such as mask wearing, which we know can work, we have real evidence now from other countries, then perhaps, but th- there's no question we're in a more serious situation now. So if this were a patient, Pamela, I would say earlier you could have used a less aggressive treatment, hmm. but now you have more virus, you have uh, obviously more spread, you may need more aggressive treatment. And, and what do you make of the, the more virus, the more spread? Is that just because, in your view, people have just let their, their guard down, that states open too soon? Yeah, I, I think you could, yes, those those two things for sure. But I think you could trace it back even a little further. I mean, I think what strikes me now, just having covered this for several months, is mm-hmm. that in the beginning, um, I don't think there was a seriousness about this, which would have manifested in terms of real widespread available testing to, to get your arms around it, get eyes on this early on. And I think as a result of that, we had significant community spread started off on the West Coast and the East Coast and then has gradually made its way further and further into the country. So um, I think it's been there, you know, this has been happening for some time and then got exacerbated by closing too late, got exacerbated by opening too soon, Mm. uh, people not wearing masks, all those things you layer into it. But I think it was that lack of seriousness up front that's really driving this. And then you look at the numbers, the data coming out today, 33 states, uh, Dr. Gupta, are seeing an increase in cases. Hospitalizations are up in at least a dozen and deaths are increasing in seven. Does there need Mm. to be more of a national approach to be dealing with this spike? Because when you hear from the White House, there is still um, this message coming out from the president from the very top saying, look, things are things are getting under control now. Schools should reopen and the state should decide what to do in terms of um, the messaging on coronavirus. Yeah, no, uh, Pamela, I, I think there there has to be a national plan. And, and I think perhaps that's obvious to people from a public health perspective. But, you know, as I as I talk to people in different states around the country, you do hear different things in terms of their approach. And and I think it makes it confusing. Uh, one state is going to approach it this way. Another state is going to approach it this way. I mean, we all like travel around between these states. Uh, you know, are you uh, sort of following the new state's guidelines when you travel? It's, it gets confusing. Second of all, yeah, just because people do travel, I mean, these states are not bubbles. Uh, 
So how are you going to sort of handle that without, without a national plan? The countries that have had the most success have had a national plan. It doesn't mean it's something that has to last forever, some sort of new uh, national plan, but it has to be in part in place for a, part, for a little length of time still. Yeah, it was interesting that the president said, look at these other countries, their schools are reopening, but those countries actually followed a national plan. And, and Dr. Fauci today said that he's concerned too about the neighboring states, to your point, about right. it's not just you know an isolated state. People travel across state lines, so that's an issue. And then you look at the, the long lines for testing and, and nurses and doctors are sharing their stories of PPE shortages. When you look at this, do you feel like we're back to where we were in March? You know, I really do. I, I, I remember having conversations with people back then about how difficult it was to get tested, uh, and that even for healthcare workers at that time. As it turns out, uh, Pamela, my wife and three daughters, uh, they had, who you met, they, they, have, they had to get tested uh, recently. They decided to get tested, and it was almost four and a half hours of waiting mm. in their car. Uh, and then somebody came out ultimately with a, with, with, PPE on and, and did the swabs, but it, it's a long time. And, and I remember she was telling me a lot of people just were leaving. They, mm -hmm. they couldn't possibly wait that long. They have the rest of their lives. So I think with regard to testing, that has been surprising to me that at this point, as my kids are thinking about, are they gonna go to school in the fall? Are people thinking about their businesses? Mm -hmm. Are you gonna go into the office, Pamela? How, where does testing fall into this? I know that there's a lot of back and forth about all sorts of different things, but if we had a quick, reliable, widely available test that you could know that you're not carrying the virus, that the people that you're gonna work with today are not carrying the virus, that my kids' schoolmates are not carrying the virus, and so on, it would have gone a long way. But we're still not there but, yet. It is possible, but we're not there yet. So it's possible, so w what's missing here? What, what, what's missing? Why isn't this happening? I mean, we're five months yeah. in to combating this. I, well, I mean, you know, look, I, I, it, it's, it, I don't know is the answer. <laughs> okay, and that's but, a fine but, answer. But, it's but let me just say, Pamela, I think there's been a de-emphasis on testing for a long time. And, and, and I think it's manifesting itself in all these different ways. Uh, we've heard, I mean, it's no secret, you know, this idea of, hey, if you don't test, you won't find the cases, and that's a good thing. That's obviously not true from a public health standpoint, but it may have manifested into the, we still don't have widely available reliable, accurate testing that, you know, people can get in order to return to their lives. We still don't have it. And the president is dismissing um, the CDC guidance on reopening schools. Then you had the CDC director saying that the agency would not revive those guidelines after the vice president said they would. As you mentioned, you're, you're not only a doctor, you are a parent. Yeah. What message does that send? Yeah, I think the parent hat is, is more important on this question, right? Because I think every parent uh, wants to make sure their kid's school is as safe as possible. I mean, the, the, you know, we're not asking for brand new technologies here. You're talking about doing things to basically make it harder for this virus to jump from person to person. Distance, masks, basic hygiene, no congregated gatherings, you know, within, within the school. All those things that probably are common sense to most mm -hmm. people by now. But I think, Pamela, you're right. I mean, as, as a parent, I think everybody wants their school to be as safe as possible. Why would you think about dialing back guidelines in the middle of a pandemic? Mm -hmm. um, these are important things that, that I, you know, you don't find too onerous. Again, spacing the desk six feet apart, wearing masks, uh, hand hygiene. Uh, you know, all, all the things that I think people would assume anyways. But then there's a practicality. Some classrooms can't do that. They don't have the space. I mean, there's, it, it's not, it, it appears to not be a one-size-fits-all approach here. Um, yeah. I want to really quickly get your reaction to the Florida Governor, Ron DeSantis, uh, talking about Florida's decision to reopen all the schools there. Listen to this. 
if you can do Home Depot, if you can do Walmart, if you can do these things, we absolutely can do the schools. I want our kids to be able to minimize this uh, education gap that I think has developed. And as you, he is saying this, is Florida seeing a single day record of 120 deaths, as you see on your screen? I mean, what is your reaction to that? Well, I mean, I think as a parent, I want my kids to go to school in the fall. A absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if that can happen in a, in, a, in a safe, a possible way, then I would like that to happen. The problem where I live, the problem in Florida, as you're mentioning, is that there's a lot of virus spreading there right now. There was this great study, Pamela, basically said, take all these things, closing theaters, closing stadium concerts, businesses, whatever. What's the impact of all these things on the overall spread? And they said that closing down schools, according to this one study, was mm -hmm. somewhere between 2 and 4%. Okay, it's not a huge impact, but it is an impact. But if you have, you know, 10,000 people who are getting newly infected every day, 2 to 4% turns out to be a huge impact then, right? Mm -hmm. If the numbers were down to a couple hundred a day, then you'd think we have a lot less to lose by opening schools in terms of its impact on the community. Do you think that's a fair comparison, though, very quickly, of running an errand and going to Home Depot and sending your kids to school? What do you think about that no. comparison? No, it's, 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 it's not. I mean, just for, again, from a public health standpoint, you're next to each other for periods of time. You have longer duration, you know, stores and things like that. Uh, you know, there's a risk there, obviously, but it's a much different environment in those situations. So uh, schools is, is part of your life. Those are occasional trips. Mm. All right. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, really uh, great discussion with you. Thanks for coming on. Great you to see you. You too. And be sure to tune in tonight for a CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears, hosted by Sanjay Gupta and Anderson Cooper. That's right here on CNN at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, President Trump and his money, the Supreme Court today ruling against the president. But the White House says it's a victory. We'll explain. Plus, a normally healthy 16-year-old girl, teenager, now in the hospital battling coronavirus. Her aunt joins me ahead with a message you need to hear. Turning to our politics lead now, the president is not above the law. That is the bottom line from two major rulings from the Supreme Court today. At the center of it, President Trump's financial records and his tax returns. The court ruled against President Trump in both cases 7-2. to two. On the first case, the justices said New York prosecutors can subpoena his financial records even while he is in office, but a lower court needs to make that decision. And in the other case, Congress wanted to subpoena Trump's financial documents. That is going back to a lower court, too, and Congress will need to give some more specifics, including why it wants those documents. Conservative-leaning Chief Justice John Roberts and Trump-appointed justices Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch all siding against the president on this ruling. Joining me now to discuss is CNN Chief Legal Analyst Jeffrey Tubin, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the Justice Department, Elliot Williams, and White House Correspondent, Caitlin Collins. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Jeffrey, first to you, bottom line, what do these opinions mean for President Trump and the Office of the Presidency? Well, it means in a very practical sense that for a second time, uh, Donald Trump will face the voters without disclosing his tax returns because even though the court legally ruled against the president, as a practical matter, they sent the case mm -hmm. back for further proceedings, which will certainly take uh, more than t more than it, the, the the few months left uh, before the election. So, in a cynical way, uh, the president had its way. He is now facing 
the virtual certainty that the district attorney in Manhattan will eventually get his records as part of a criminal investigation. That's an unnerving thing. I don't know if the president committed any crimes, but if there is evidence of crimes in those documents, they will soon be in the hands of prosecutors, but it will all happen after election day. And then, Elliot, what does this mean in terms of what the public can see, tax returns, financial documents, and um, what Congress can get from the president? Right. Again, I think either party, public, the public and Congress, aren't going to see any sort of documents anytime, to, anytime soon, just as Jeffrey had said. But look, you know, again, big picture, just to use a legal term, let's not forget, and I'm going to use a legal term here, the president got spanked today by the Supreme Court. This was a resounding legal defeat for the president. Any attempt to spin this as, well, because of the fact that it will take a long time before the public or Congress may see some of these tax returns, doesn't change the fact that now for the third time in American history, first with Richard Nixon, then with Bill Clinton, you have a president where the Supreme Court has ruled against them, noting that um, you know the president's not above the law and ultimately the president is subject to the same legal process as any other citizen. But again, there's legal questions, just as Jeffrey had said, there's legal questions and political ones. And the, pre the public just won't. The, the president was able to be elected in 2016 without his tax information being made available to the public. And, you know, he will face election in 2020 with that likely being the same case. Now, again, that's a question for the voters. And to some extent, that's not a question for the Supreme Court to resolve. But it's an unfortunate quirk in where our political process is now today as a result of this president, where the president can just get away with concealing, in effect, his financial information from the scrutiny of voters. And the White House press secretary, oh, go ahead. Oh, I thought you were saying No, something. and Congress, too. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, and, and, you know, the White House press secretary, she was pressed on, on all of this today. And here's what she said about the ruling. This was a win for the president. Right. The justices did not rule against him. And then moments after that, this is what the president said about the decision. From a certain point, I'm satisfied. From another point, I'm not satisfied. Because, frankly, this is a political witch hunt. So, Caitlin, is this a win for the president? Is he not satisfied? Does he take it personally that two of the justices he appointed ruled against him? The president didn't answer our questions on that. We were actually trying to ask him that after he gave us those first reactions. And so he wouldn't say, you know, how he felt about that. Of course, he views them as his justices. Um, and so what you heard from the president, though, saying, you know, it, some parts I'm satisfied, at some parts I'm not. You know, his Twitter feed tells a very different story, obviously, Pam. He clearly is not happy with the decision. And his attorney, Jay Sekulow, who argued this case before the Supreme Court, is viewing it as really a temporary victory. And he's right that the president can make new objections to what's happening in New York, but they overall ruled against the president's main argument, which is that a sitting president is immune from this kind of investigation. And so today we asked, you know, does the president agree with that from the White House? And they said that he still maintains his position, which is that he has immunity while he's in office, which the Supreme Court roundly rejected today. That's absolutely right. They did. And when you look at how the justices came down, let's look at that list. You have Chief Justice Roberts, along with conservative justices uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, all siding with the majority. Um, and as we just talked about, Jeffrey Tubin, Trump appointed Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Was this a surprise to you? What do you think? No, not really, because the president's claim was so outrageous and so outside the traditions of American law. You know, when you had the Supreme Court unanimously say that President Nixon had to turn over the White House tapes 
in, uh, in 1974 and unanimously say in 1998 that Bill Clinton had to sit for a civil deposition in the Paula Jones sexual, sexual harassment case. The idea that the president could not be subpoenaed or at all was just completely ridiculous. And even the two justices who voted for him, uh, Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, mm-hmm. they didn't buy that mm-hmm. argument either. So, you know, the court did say that the president is not above the law, but the law is going to work slowly, and that will probably work to the president's political advantage this year. It appears that way. Uh, All right, Jeffrey Tubin, Elliot Williams, thank you. Caitlin, stick around. Well, Dr. Fauci says division among Americans is hurting efforts to get coronavirus under control, and now there is a new, very public division between the president and his health officials. One of the problems we're facing is that in the middle of trying to fight an unprecedented historic pandemic, there is still divisiveness. There's divisiveness politically. We can see that when we look at the different viewpoints that people take towards this. We are all in this together and we can get through this. And our politics lead Dr. Anthony Fauci pleading with Americans to unite in the fight against coronavirus as President Trump continues to publicly clash with his own health experts. And as Caitlin Collins reports, the president's recent attack on the CDC back to school guidelines is just the latest example of Trump bunking bucking science and playing politics with a pandemic. With only weeks before some schools are scheduled to reopen, more confusion is emerging from the CDC today. Our guidelines are our guidelines, but we are going to provide additional uh, reference documents to aid basically communities uh, in tr- that are trying to reopen K-12. through CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield now says his agency won't change its guidance on reopening schools after President Trump criticized it, but will release additional information instead. It's not a revision of the guidelines. It's just to be brought, provide additional information to help um, the schools be able to use the guidance that we put forward. Yesterday, Trump said the guidance was too tough and expensive, but officials have struggled to say exactly what Trump has a problem with. Which guidelines are too tough? Which guidelines are impractical? I think it's important, George, to realize, and you use the word guide guidelines. That's what CDC has done. They provide guidances. They're not requirements. With the president and the CDC on different pages, Maryland's Republican governor, Larry Hogan, says it's Trump who's mixed up. Well, actually, I'm not confused. I think it's the president who's confused. Um, The governor seemed to know exactly. (laughs) Yeah, we knew exactly what the CDC was talking about. Asked how the administration can say that they're not going to tell schools how to open, but they will say when. Kaylee McEnany said this. The costs are too high to keep schools shut down. How can you say you're not going to tell all the schools how to reopen, but you're going to tell them all when to reopen? There are are 47 guidelines issued by the states. Um, There's local uh, guidelines that have been put in place. This can be done safely. It can be done well. When you do testing to that extent. Also today, Trump repeated his inaccurate assertion that there are more cases in the U.S. because there's more testing, claiming if half the people had been tested, there would be half the cases. But again, that's not true, even according to his own health experts. That's an indication that you do have additional uh, infections. 
The Trump administration is also being accused of politicizing the reopening of schools by threatening to cut off funding if some of them don't reopen. Today, the education secretary claimed that money could go towards a conservative cause, school choice. If schools aren't going to reopen, we're not suggesting pulling funding from education, but instead allowing families take let the families take that money and figure out where their kids can get educated. Now, Pam, we were just out in the Rose Garden with the president, and he repeated his assertion that he thinks if students in Germany can go back to school, then we should be fine to do so here in the United States. Though, of course, he did not know the vast differences in how the two countries have handled the coronavirus pandemic and how Germany flattened the curve successfully, while clearly the United States has not. Right. And there was a, a sort of a national uh, standard in Germany versus the, very different from the U.S. Caitlin, stay with us. We have a lot to discuss. And we're going to be joined now by Dr. Seema Yasmin, CNN medical analyst and former CDC disease detective. Uh, Dr. Yasmin, thanks for coming on. So you have the American Public Health Association saying, quote, the Trump administration's reported pressuring of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention wrongly makes educators, students and parents political pawns and could have deadly consequences during the COVID-19 pandemic. In your view, does reopening too soon have deadly consequences? It absolutely can. And Pamela, we've seen this play out before. Right now, the president is saying that the CDC guidelines on school reopening are too tough. But it wasn't that long ago that he was saying the exact same thing about guidelines for businesses reopening. And so those guidelines were then revised. In effect, what we're learning today is that businesses were then kind of just given the leeway to rewrite their own reopening rules. Mm -hmm. How we saw that manifest was the crisis that we're in now, where we're seeing these record case counts day by day. So the APHA is completely right here that yesterday we saw the vice president say CDC guidelines will be revised. Today, the CDC director himself says, no, they won't. So in effect, you have 76 mm -hmm. million school kids, teachers and parents thinking, well, what do we do then? People are just left in the dark. And Dr. Uh, I mean, uh, Caitlin, Dr. Yasmin pointed to Not this. Not a doctor yet. <laughs> what? I'm sorry. Oh, Not yeah. <laughs> Not yet, Caitlin, but you're well on your way. Um, Dr. Yasmin had pointed out that back in April, the president, as we know, pressured states to reopen businesses. And now it's many of those same states that we're seeing these surging cases and increased positivity rates like in Florida. Did the president learn anything from that? What are you hearing from sources? Well, the White House hasn't even seemed to acknowledge that, that those were the very states that they were touting. And remember, the president invited the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, into the Oval Office. We were there that day, and he took a victory lap about how Florida had handled the outbreak so far. And of course, now that's the danger in taking a victory lap is look at what's happening in Florida now. So it doesn't seem that that is something that's really registered. I mean, tomorrow the president is flying to one of the worst hotspots in the country right now, Miami-Dade County, where he's doing a briefing on drug trafficking and attending a fundraiser. And the White House has said that they do not have really any qualms about going there and taking this big contingency with him, despite the fact that cases are really high there and the hospitals already say that they're overwhelmed by what's going on. Yeah, it, it just goes along with this theme from the White House that, hey, there's nothing to see here. There, you know, when you look at the data, Dr. Yasmin, and you are seeing a surge of cases, a surge in hospitalizations and deaths um, in some areas. Uh, when you look at reopening schools, reopening businesses, wearing a face mask, getting testing, 
it's all become so politicized and partisan. At today's White House event with Hispa Hispanic American leaders, you can see in this video we're showing right here, um, in this video at least, no one's wearing a mask. Uh, so what do you make of the administration's attempts to push reopening early and go against the advice of um, the president's own health experts? It's completely in line with how we've seen the administration respond to this pandemic, Pamela. So it's not shocking at this point, but it is extremely troubling. And also this false narrative that we keep hearing, right? That, oh, of course, we're seeing more cases. It's because we're doing more testing. And that's completely not it. We're also seeing deaths increase. We're also seeing hospitalization rates, the records of those being broken in eight states. And we're not hearing this truthful messaging that actually the number of positive tests, that rate, that's what's coming back a lot higher. So we're being lied to about the extent of this crisis, and it's only going to get worse until we have science-led policy. Just very quickly, how? what's the significance of a higher positivity rate? Why should, to the, to the average person, what does that mean? Why is that so important? So let's just quickly use Dallas County, Texas as an example. A few weeks ago, one in 10 tests was coming back positive for COVID-19. Now it's closer to one in four. So it's saying, yes, you might be ramping up testing in your area, but actually that doesn't explain why so many more people are infected. What's really happening is infection rates are truly on the rise. And in fact, really quickly, in Houston, we're learning there's been an uptick in people dying at home of COVID, being diagnosed on their autopsy. So they're not even mm. being tested while alive life, not even being registered in these case counts, which are already so high. Wow. All right. Thank you so much, doctor. And uh, Caitlin Collins, appreciate you both coming on. <laughs> All right. Coming up, the RNC has already moved next month's convention to Florida. So why are Republicans scouting more locations? That's next. Stunning numbers out of Florida where the positivity rate for coronavirus tests is at nearly 20 percent. So that means about one out of five people tested for the virus actually has it. CNN's Randy Kay is in Palm Beach County. Uh, so, Randy, it seems like Florida is breaking records daily lately. Yeah, more than 8,900 new cases in the last 24 hours and 120 deaths, Pamela. That is the highest number of deaths in a single day here in the state. And it's the positivity rate that you mentioned that people are really concerned about. Uh, statewide, the positivity rate now is 18.39 percent. That is the highest that we've seen in the last couple of weeks. The governor held a press conference today. He touched on it. He said that, yes, it is a bit higher, but that the death rates are down. He quickly points to the fact that uh, most of the new cases, the positive cases, are those under 40 and that the death rate among them is very, very low. Meanwhile, Miami-Dade, the hardest hit county, uh, has a positivity rate of 28%. That's where the president is heading uh, just tomorrow. 46 hospitals in 26 different counties are now running out of ICU beds. They don't have any to spare, and in all, more than 4,000 deaths. Meanwhile, the counties are shutting down in some way, but the RNC, the Republican National Convention, still expected to take place in Jacksonville uh, in just a few weeks, in, in August. And uh, they are now looking at, the, the Republican officials are now looking at an outdoor venue instead of the arena that's indoors that holds about 15,000 people. They're looking at two outdoor venues, including uh, the stadium where the Jacksonville Jaguars plays. Uh, they, that holds about 67,000 people in another uh, baseball arena, uh, also outside that holds about uh, 11,000 people where some minor league teams play. So we'll see uh, if the president signs off on that. Apparently he's been briefed but hasn't officially signed off on that. And I can tell you that the Senate Majority Leader 
uh, has been asked if he would go to the RNC. He hasn't said he would. He said he needs to see what's happening in late August and determine if it's safe to gather that many people, Pam. Hmm. All right. And he has been taking the precautions, wearing masks and so forth. Um, we'll have to wait and see what happens. Randy Kay, thank you so much. Sure. Well, an otherwise healthy teenager is now fighting for her life, battling coronavirus. Her aunt joins me next with her plea to the public. The family of a 16-year-old Florida girl with coronavirus is asking you to think about her before you go places without a mask. Helene O'Connell was just taken off a ventilator today. She was in a medically induced coma for nearly two weeks. Her family says she was a healthy teenager with no underlying health conditions. I'm going to bring in her aunt, Carmen Barlianto. Thank you so much, Carmen. I know it has been such an emotional journey for you. Tell us about uh, Helene and, and what she has been through with coronavirus. Um, wow, it's been a up and down roller coaster ride. Um, corona has just devastated her body and the ups and downs of anything you can imagine and the emotional to toll on my sister. Mm -hmm. um, she, yeah, like high blood pressure. They've had her on insulin, pneumonia, um, her fever up and down anywhere from 101 to 103. Um, just waiting on these updates every day and, and then it changes so rapidly. And then mm -hmm. we're just been hopeful and um, it's a, it's we got happy news today. She just you know, she's off the ventilator and we're waiting to see what's next. That is that is a huge step in the right direction for sure. How did yeah. it, it, what were her initial symptoms? Um, was it was it clear that she had COVID initially? No, um, fever and nauseous. She you know, she had a fever. And she just, you know, maybe it's the bug. Um, yeah, it wasn't your first initial shortness of breath. Um, it's more, you know, nausea and then vomiting. And, you know, she went to the ER. They sent her home. They didn't test her because she didn't have enough of the symptoms. Wow. Two days later, it changed so quick. And she was admitted. They didn't even and test her. Oh, God. The first time, Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. she is still in the hospital, as we know, with her mother, but her mother cannot leave yeah. and no one else can go visit. I can't imagine how hard this has been for the whole family. My mom had been in um, the ICU and we couldn't visit her when she was in critical condition. It's just, it's awful. How, tell us how it's been yeah. for you. I, I mean, I put myself in their shoes. Um, my sister has not left the hospital. My brother-in-law had to quarantine at home. He's still at home. Uh, just waiting, waiting this out and seeing, just hoping that today we got the best news. Absolutely. And, you know, you see uh, in the media images of young people out of bars, parties, downplaying coronavirus. Yeah. What is your message to them? Um... COVID don't care. That's what we're telling everybody. She's 16, healthy, um, came out of nowhere. This can go to anybody. It's not for elderly. Um, just, you got to mask up. That's all we have. Um, social distance. 
just be aware. Um, I don't know. We don't know when this is going to end. I don't know when she's going to come home. And and the effects of COVID, uh, you hear stories from other survivors, Mm. and it's scary. Yeah, you don't know. She's only 16. She's only 16. You don't know what the long-term effects are, but we hope... We pray that she will make a full recovery and a full recovery very soon. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing this important story. Helene O'Connell's family, they've set up a GoFundMe page to help cover her medical bills. Carmen Barlianto, thank you so much. Best of luck to you and your family. Thank you. Thanks to everybody. Be right back. Well, it seems like nearly every day you'll see a new anti-Trump ad. Ads aren't unusual for an election year, of course, but what is, is that many of these anti-Trump ads are paid for by Republican never-Trump groups, as CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports. When President Trump said this about spiking cases of coronavirus. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. A new television ad quickly sprang to life. Slow the testing down, please. Slow the testing down? Slow down our chance to save tens of thousands of lives. It's not the work of Democrats, but rather the Never Trump movement a small slice of Republicans trying to make Trump a one-term president. After failing four years ago, the movement is back and multiplying with the Lincoln Project and Republican voters against Trump, along with new groups like Bush alumni for Biden, whose slogan is, we work for W, we support Joe. Within a couple of days, it's gonna be down to close to zero. This time, they're using the president's words against him, hoping to get into his head. At least that's the goal of the Lincoln Project, whose videos made by former aides to George W. Bush, John McCain, and Mitt Romney are designed to relentlessly mock and needle the president. George Conway, whose wife Kellyanne Conway is a top Trump advisor, is a co-founder. He's thoroughly unfit for office. The president has long mocked never Trumpers, taking delight in taking over the Republican Party. Some of these people don't get it. Never Trump. By the way, never Trump is disappearing rapidly. While polls show as many as nine out of 10 Republicans say they support the president, the second act of the movement may be different than 2016. Two reasons why. The Trump record and Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden just simply isn't as scary to them. I think women are going to lose this election for Donald Trump. I think that is going to be the decisive and defining group of people. Sarah Longwell has studied Trump voters since 2016. She's watched them stand by the president, but she senses a different moment. The health crisis, the economic crisis, the racial crisis, people are tired. They feel like Trump isn't fit for the moment. They feel like the stakes are higher. Her group is collecting testimonials believing the power of individual stories will make other Republicans comfortable saying it out loud. And I'll vote for a tuna fish sandwich before I vote for Donald Trump again. We talk. And that Michigan voter there, Jack Spielman, who lives in Macomb County, of course, a critical part of Michigan. I talked to him today and he said that he you know, was hoping that uh, Donald Trump would be a better president, but that has not turned out to be. He said he's a failed leader. So he was giving his voice to these testimonials, trying to urge other Republicans to do the same. Now, Pamela, the Trump campaign dismisses the Never Trump movement as um, Um, as an irrelevant factor. And of course, the Trump campaign is spending uh, many, many, many more dollars here. But no question, the Never Trump campaign is getting under the president's skin this summer. All right, Jeff Zeleny, thank you so much. Good to see you. Likewise. And thank you for joining us today. Our coverage on CNN continues right now.
When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.